Next, the Prime Minister, opposition leader, and even some members of the royal family gathered in Westminster Abbey this week to sing the praises of the NHS. Now 75 years old, isn't it about time we had some of those difficult conversations about what's going wrong in the health service? Joining me now is former Health Secretary Sajid Javid. Sajid, thank you for joining Spectator TV. Thank you. To start, we've had 13 years of Tory rule. How is the NHS doing now? Well, the NHS is getting record amounts of funding. It's dealing with more uh, people and more patients than ever before in its history. It's got more doctors and nurses than ever before. Uh, it's had to deal with uh, uh, a, a pandemic, which we haven't seen the likes of for, for decades. And so it, in many senses, it's, it's doing well in terms of looking after so many people. But when you compare the NHS to other universal healthcare systems in countries we often compare ourselves to, our, our neighbors in Europe, Australia, Japan, and other places, uh, the health outcomes, which ultimately I think is what matters most to, uh, to people, are definitely not as good as they should be. You've become very vocal recently about calling for change and calling for reform of the NHS. What has propelled you to do that? Well, after having been health secretary and as well as having obviously other jobs in government, which I was dealing with the, the Department of Health and Social Care, it's, uh, it's, it's become more of a challenge, I think, because of the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, you know, I think we could see because of an aging society, because of you know, the, the changes in the burden of disease, especially since the NHS was created, because of the expectations that people rightly have for the latest drugs and treatments. So we've seen this surge in demand and uh, supply hasn't been keeping up. And I, I think you know, when we all sort of look at it and we do an honest assessment, the fact that so many people are waiting for GPs, they're waiting for A&E, they're waiting for ambulances, they're waiting for scans and operations, you know, that's not, it's far from ideal. And I think we have to then look at that and, and think to ourselves, you know, when funding is at such a record high, then what are the causes of this? How come other countries aren't facing necessarily the same issues in delivery when they all have the same challenges of rising demand? And I think we have to, you know, as, as politicians, you'll know, be honest in our assessment. And instead of what I think sometimes is a, a sort of pol politicians are sort of leaning into you know, adulation, competing with each other, is to say, look, you know, where the NHS works well, great. But if it doesn't work well, if it's not delivering what British people would rightly expect. We should be honest and, and have an assessment and have a serious debate about its future and what's the best way to make it fit for the future. I remember when you became health secretary, you made a point of not wearing that NHS badge that many health secretaries before did. And I, I seem to recall that the suggestion was, you know, I, I don't want to be glorifying the system. I, I want to see what works and what doesn't for doctors and nurses and mm. patients and the rest. Yep. But you are by no means as vocal as you are now about the necessary reform that you think needs to take place. What is going so wrong in the political discussion that it takes an MP who was, who was leading the health service but has now announced that they're going to be stepping down and not running for re-election, that only at that point do politicians tend to feel comfortable to start talking about this stuff? Well, I, I think for... Yeah, and you're right, it is about politicians. It's not one particular party. I think all the major political parties uh, have been the you know, really, when it comes to the NHS, just sort of focusing, focusing on, on almost treating it like a religion, like the rest of the country, as though you know, it, it's above criticism. And at the end of the day, we must remember it's a, it's a health service. 
uh, and it's there really obviously for all of us. But what we want out of it are the best outcomes. And I think where politicians get stuck really is that they are very afraid uh, to speak honestly and openly about the challenges of the NHS and how to fix them because, frankly, they just don't want to get their head shot off. They just feel that they think that's not what the public want to hear. But interestingly, you know, I, I've started you know, talking about the NHS uh, yeah, a lot recently, as you say, about the, the future of it, because I'm deeply concerned about it. And um, just the, the last couple of days, I wrote about it in, 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 in The Times and uh, elsewhere. And I can tell you, just today, I had, I've had so many emails uh, from people, from the public, you know, coming in to me unsolicited about my comments, the vast majority in support of what I'm saying, which is let's have an honest debate, let's have a royal commission. But interestingly, when I was looking at them uh, earlier today, the, the, the so vast majority in support, but most of those that are in support from people working inside the NHS, doctors, nurses, consultants and inside the NHS, uh, talking about this and, and, and saying, yeah, it's great that you, know, you, Sajid, and, you know, Tony Blair today and others are openly talking about the kind of things that need change. Yeah. Another politician talking about change is Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting. Mm. Does it worry you as a Tory MP that Labour might be bolder on this topic and might be offering up more solutions come the next general election than your own party? No, not really. Look, I, I want to see a, a NHS that's fit for the future. And I think to get there, we are going to need you know, politicians on all sides to to work together. You know, one of one of the things that we've had in this country uh, for many many years is a sort of settlement, let's say, on the NHS, a political mm-hmm. settlement. And and by and large, for many years, that's that served the country well up until you know, more recently, where these challenges uh, that we now face, uh, that sort of settlement almost is is stopping an honest debate. But going forward, if we don't want the NHS to be used as a day-to-day political football, I think getting all politicians to agree that there are you know, some serious problems, that it does require an honest assessment, and, uh, and, and there are you know, an agreeing way forward. Now, I think the way forward is a Royal Commission. Um, I, I, I read the other day that West Street is saying it's not a Royal Commission, but I, I think that you know, actually getting all politicians to agree to a way forward to an honest assessment with uh, with experts as well as politicians involved. And then when this Royal Commission reports back, having uh, the government of the day make the decisions in, a, in as it should in a proper democratic fashion is the right way forward. I want to ask you a little bit about money, because again, you were health secretary, you will have had detailed understanding about yeah. how much money is really funneled into the health service. Uh, I think it's now approaching about 44% of uh, public service day-to-day spending. Um, I think there's this almost universal assumption that one of the struggles for the NHS is that it was so badly underfunded by Tory governments during the years of austerity. But if you look back and you look at government-only spending, the NHS consistently ranks in the top four countries in the OECD's rankings for government-only spending. Do you think that money is the problem? Do you think the system is the problem. One thing I'm curious about is whether or not the system is actually stopping more money from going in. Because if we look at these other universal systems, they're much more pragmatic about combining state and private sector money to top up their health service. Yeah, the the NHS, as we know, relies almost entirely on taxpayer funding. Mm -hmm. Unlike, as as you rightly pointed out, many of the, well, actually all other universal healthcare systems. So when we talk about countries like Germany and France and Italy and Japan and Australia, right, all of them, right? Now, but they all 
All those countries, by the way, by having a universal healthcare system, unlike, let's say, the United States, which is a system I would not want to see anything like that here in the UK, uh, if you compare ourselves to other, just other European countries, is the, as you say, they have funding from multiple sources. Now, the lion's share is probably still coming from the state one way or the other, but people are able to contribute, and in, in, in almost all those countries, they contribute in a means-tested way. So the end result of that is that as a, you know, a value I think we could all sign up to, which is that uh, anyone in a country, no matter who they are, should get you know, world-class healthcare uh, but based on their needs, you know, based on their, you know, on their means and their ability, right? So your means should not hold you back from getting uh, the care uh, that you need. And so that's how these countries have approached it. What happens in the UK, and I haven't seen this just from the perspective of the health secretary, but as chancellor as well, is that when at any chancellor, when they're allocating uh, funding, of course, there's many other trade-offs uh, to be made. You know, you need to, what about education? What about especially now defense costs are going up, interest rates you know, are going up. You know, all of those need government funding as well. So inevitably there's trade-offs and a chancellor will look at the biggest budget in, you know, in, in, in government, the NHS, and inevitably the NHS uh, will have to be a consequence of that trade-off. So it, they, they, to, to avoid that to some extent, you know, I think having a, a look at other models of care and how they're funded is, is the right thing uh, to do. Uh, but also uh, is to, you, when you look at the overall funding, is to realize that it's not a question of funding in that other countries with less funding seem to be getting better outcomes. So you have to look at the model and you have to look at many other aspects of healthcare. I think it's very interesting that you've had so many people writing to you since your comments in The Times um, saying that they broadly speaking agree with you. How do you process getting these messages from patients who are having a tough time with the slights that we saw this week at Westminster Abbey with politicians praying over the NHS, doing readings, essentially giving sermons? I mean, in my mind, it really doesn't add up. Well, look, I, I think there is, when you look at the NHS, especially over the 75-year history, I think when we're, especially we're, if we're talking about the people that work in the NHS, the doctors, the nurses, consultants, and you know, anyone who's working in the NHS in any capacity, I think these people are, are, in my experience, they are people that work incredibly hard, they're incredibly dedicated, they're compassionate, caring people, but they are working within the structures that have been created for them ultimately by politicians of, of, of many parties, successive governments, and that broad structure of the NHS hasn't changed when the world around it has changed dramatically. And so the, 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 the people in the NHS, you know, I think they do deserve thanks for doing what they do, but I think if we are to properly support them, we must realize the, 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 the challenges that they work in can be you know, alleviated to a huge extent if we as politicians take a dispassionate uh, look uh, at the NHS and its structure. Last question. Uh, you became health secretary well into 2021 uh, as we were looking to lift restrictions and go back to normal life. I know you weren't there at the, at the height of lockdown. Yeah. And a lot of what we're seeing now, especially with these record waiting lists, as a result of people staying at home and treatments vastly delayed. Do you think in retrospect that stay at home messaging to protect the NHS was a mistake? Um, I don't know in terms of um, the, 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 the um, nature of your question because I don't think we have enough data yet in that 
that the NHS has, compared to other countries, has less capacity when you look at it in terms of beds versus, say, you know, Germany has something like seven uh, the, you know, beds per thousand when we have two or three. When you look at it in terms of um, your uh, scanning equipment and your number of doctors and nurses, it has less capacity than most other European countries. And intentionally run that way to stay. And, and it's so been run that way. The NHS is, is run at about 95% capacity, when in most other countries in Europe, they run around 80, 85% capacity. So when it was already running at a very high uh, sort of rate before the pandemic hit, I, I think, you know, obviously I wasn't there at the time, but I can understand reasons as to why the decisions that were made were made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think I don't want to, even though I've been there as health secretary during half of the pandemic, let's say, I don't want to really second guess the decisions that were made at the time because I don't feel I have all the information. Thatcher, thanks for joining Spectator TV. Good, thank you very much. Next up, another tough week for Rishi Sunak as his ratings fell into the negative for the first time since he became prime minister. Joining me now is our political editor, Katie Bowles. Katie, thanks for joining Spectator TV. So the Parliament Standards Watchdog has recommended that Chris Pincher be suspended as an MP for eight weeks following investigations of sexual misconduct. Uh, Now, this scandal brings us back to the Boris Johnson era. Really, it was the revelation of the scandal that started some of those resignations that ultimately led to Boris Johnson leaving. Can you remind us of the situation and also tell us what happens next? Chris Pincher uh, ultimately was accused of groping an individual at a late night event. Um, It was then number 10 subsequent uh, mishandling in the view of MPs that triggered, as you say, those mass resignations. And this report looks into uh, the alleged incident. And as a result of what they say is uh, Chris Pincher's behavior, he is now facing an eight-week suspension. And that, that means that there's not definitely a by-election because there has to be a recall petition um, and then you have to have 10% of the constituency sign it. Um, but if you think about the way these things go, it's very likely that this will now be a by-election. And that means Rishi Sunak already has three by-elections on the 10th of July. We had the threat of the Nadine Doris by-election still hanging over uh, the party, um, much to the annoyance, I think, of her former colleagues that she won't just go. Um, but that's the mid-Bedfordshire by-election when we get it. And it means that there will also be Chris Pincher and a, a by-election in Tamworth, his seat. It's a fairly safe seat. It's a majority around 19,000. But I think it's a, tr- it's a problem for Rishi Sunak in two ways. By-elections tend to be worse for the governing parties. And um, so a seat you might have a chance of winning in a, or holding in a general election you're more likely to lose in a by-election. You're much more likely to get tactical voting, anti-Tory vote, which you can also get in a general election, but particularly in by-elections. And then also, you have to question uh, whether Number 10, CCHQ and the Whips Office have really uh, handled or prepared for this correctly, because only a few weeks ago, Eddie Hughes, who's an MP who won a red wall seat um, in 2017, his seat goes in the Boundary Commission review and he's been adopted as the candidate for Tamworth. Now, that's quite, that leaves ultimately the Tories down a bind, which is were he to ha- stand now as the by election candidate in that seat, he would have to quit his current seat, sparking a by election in uh, Walsall, where his seat is, um, which has a much smaller majority um, in terms of what we can expect to happen there. Um, so there would still have to be a by election. Or I think what's probably more likely is he stays put. But then what happens in the sense of looking for a Tory candidate to stand in a by-election, which is normally a pretty horrible experience. Um, and, if, and if they do hold a uh, 
when the boundaries change, do they then stand or does Eddie Hughes come in? So you're potentially looking for someone to stand in a seat just for the sake of it. And I think um, there's a few MPs asking why they didn't think about this before selecting an MP a few weeks ago. It does seem like a rather bureaucratic oversight and one that the Tory party would want to be on top of, given the fact that this is a difficult position for them to start in. Uh, why not try to make the best of it if you're already in a difficult position? Yes, exactly. And like maybe there's a solution that uh, all the MPs I've spoken to who at first presumed there was a solution, but now I don't think there is one, uh, is there is, and you know we're missing it. But I think it's just adding to a sense of, yes, more by-election misery, but also a lack of control and grip about what's coming up, even when some of these things are quite predictable. Um, we knew there would be the report into Chris Pincher. Um, and I think for Rishi Sunak, you just get back to the fact that the recovery narrative of perhaps the spring feels quite a long way ago. Uh, you have the Labour lead uh, increasing or you know the gap between the two widening. I think every by-election just means that even if Rishi Sunak got some good weather, good political weather, um, these votes have the potential to really bring him back to F, just in the way that local elections did. Well, I was wondering about that, the actual number of by-elections. Um, as that number rises, does the situation get worse for the Tories, do you think? Or does the number not matter so much whether it's three, whether it's five, whether it's seven? You know, the narrative is already established that these are going to be tough by-elections. The Tories might not do so well. Does it going from three to five make a big difference? I just think it means it's ongoing. Um, ultimately, the Tories and figures in number 10 would have liked Nadine Doris to actually do what she said she was going to do on Twitter late on a, you know, actually fairly early on a Friday, it was Boris Johnson who was later, um, and and officially resigned so they could get all the by-elections out of the way. So if number 10 had their way, you'd have four by-elections on the 20th of July. Instead, they can only have three. It was already frustrating to have one hanging over. You had friends of Nadine Doris briefing out that she wouldn't let Rishi Sunak choose the date. She wanted almost to prolong his misery. Um, and I think that is obviously evidence of how having these events, there's just almost ways to trip up as you as you try and move the agenda on. So I think it's damaging in that perspective because yes, at XX number of defeats is going to look worse than a smaller number. But also it's just the, when is this going to be? Does Rishi Sunak go into the autumn when they're going to try and, I don't want to say reset, but definitely try and take control of things through the King's speech, through the conference speech, potentially through a reshuffle, whether it's this side of the summer recess or the other side. Um, and I think having by-elections will just, uh, you know, always spook your party. And that's unhelpful to him. It's more bad news for the Prime Minister, who this week saw his uh, ratings, his approval ratings fall into the negative for the first time since he became Prime Minister. Yes, this was amongst Tory supporters. So it was a Conhome Cabinet League table and they do those monthly. And Richard is in the negative for the first time since entering number 10. He's only slightly there. So Paul Goodman, the editor of Conservative Homes, said the only comfort he could offer Rishi Sunak is Theresa May and Boris Johnson at various points. So we're in the negative, but fared much, much lower. I think what's quite worrying to the government is that I think they have a total of nine ministers in the negative, which is the first time it's happened in that table. And that just suggests, I think, a general unhappiness, not perhaps a, a fury, but almost a despondency, which you see amongst some of the MPs at the moment as well. And therefore, what does Rishi Sunak do to try and um, get some momentum back? I think it's also quite interesting in terms of a reshuffle because lots of the most loyal Rishi Sunak backers are actually in the negative. And then at the top of the table, you have Ben Wallace, who there's questions about because the seat is being abolished, whether he stays in the cabinet, um, Kemi Badenoch, uh, you have Steve Barkley, who's tipped to move. And, and therefore, if he, if, he, if he does what some are expecting him to do around him, 
um, you potentially uh, get rid of some of your more popular ministers. Mm. Um, you know, every politician is different in the way that they view who they want to be their top people around them. Will Rishi Sunak prioritize loyalty and what he considers to be hard work over the polls? Will he try to balance this? Or at this point, will his number 10 be looking at these figures and think, gosh, we, we need to be more popular. We're going to have to embrace people towards the top, even if they wouldn't normally be our first pick. So I think with uh, ministers who are popular with the Tory grassroots, so this is going to be what those in number 10 expect to be the final shakeup of his front bench team ahead of an election. And if you think back to 2014, David Cameron did a very tactical one, uh, moved out his more unpopular ministers, even if they were good at reform, such as Michael Gove. He got moved to Chief Whip. Nicky Morgan was seen as more uh, appealing in the media and less divisive with the teachers and became education secretary. So it depends what you're trying to achieve. I think Rishi Sunak wants to still do things in government. He doesn't have enough to point to. So it can't all be about media, but they want ministers who will go out on the media and defend the government. Mm. Recently, there wasn't a government representation when there was a question time Brexit special. Yeah. So if the government can't defend what it's doing on Brexit, why should anyone else? Yeah. Um, so I think they want to fix that by having more enthusiastic figures going out there. Um, and he also wants loyalty, perhaps not worrying so much about balancing the warring factions and delivery. So who's best in those priority areas to try and push those things? But I think the reason this poll actually is quite important is if you think about the election next year, they are going to need to get activists out. They're going to need a good ground game. And that's very hard to do when you have an unmotivated base. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think you have to be a little bit careful about uh, doing anything that's going to uh, turn away the membership and make them less inclined to actually get out more clearly going to be a very difficult election campaign. Looking at a different party and a potential government in waiting, certainly they think, uh, Labour Party's leader, Kiyostama, gave a speech this morning on his five missions, not five pledges and promises like Rishi Sunak missions, um, but the emphasis was on education. What is the Labour Party telling the public? So this is about opportunity, is how they're branding it as a mission. But as you say, it's education policy is the main focus. And I think that's probably one of the most interesting things that they've been talking about is oracy, uh, which is effectively making um, lessons when you're teaching children in school, making how you speak and making sure you can talk and explain your ideas and almost public speaking, but just building up that confidence as something that would be a key part and making that compulsory and pitching that in the sense of they think that would do a lot um, when it comes to what you sort of see in the difference of some leaving private school, very confident public speakers, and some of you leaving are very nervous about that. And so I think that's probably the, the announcement that's got the most traction so far. Um, but we also know some of Labour's other policies on schools, so abolishing uh, you know VAT relief when it comes to private schools. And those plans are staying put. Um, so I think all in all, they're trying to pitch themselves as much more uh, on the side of state schools, I think that's fair to say. But using that as a way to say, you know, uh, opportunity for all. And the question, of course, is what uh, consequences has in terms of uh, some of these economic measures in terms of the future of private schools. Yeah. Labour argue it will make no difference. But um, obviously the independent school bodies say quite different. Uh, indeed. Uh, and I, I think there are questions about whether or not the money that they think they'll raise from abolishing that VAT relief will actually be raised. And also that money is doing a lot of work. You often hear when, you know, the non-DOM money... And the uh, private school money in terms of uh, how it is apparently being spent is pretty wide for quite a 
small pots of money. Yes, it's almost like the, it's the new corporation tax hike of the Jeremy Corbyn years. Um, but I mean, this this is a serious point for the Labour Party. They've had to scale back some of those pledges they were making around green investment. Uh, Rachel Reeves made the announcement she was going to be scaling back that $28 billion. That Labour would eventually deliver on it, but but not right away. Uh, that might have gotten more traction if big Boris Johnson news hadn't come out a few hours later. Um, but they they are have they clearly want to spend more money, but they know that they need the optics at least need to make this seem like it's costed. Yes, um, and I think Rachel Reeves, exactly as you say, is prioritizing that above other things. Hence, the twenty eight billion borrowing for green jobs has been scaled down. Though interestingly, at this launch of Keir Starmer, you had protesters. Um, who actually turned on him for watering it down, suggesting he was abandoning uh, climate change. Uh, was you know uh, so you, you can see the tension actually between within the left on it. Uh, I think is I was wondering is that protest damaging to Keir Starmer? I think some of his team might actually not mind it at all. Yeah, and um, because it shows he's they like the idea that he's standing up to some forces in his party trying to push him in various directions. Um, I think it comes down to a little bit. Is it the case that some in the Labour Party and in the general left movement feel so isolated by Keir Starmer that they then vote green. Um, they're betting that won't happen. Um, and I think the plan is to try and have a few more, um, almost get some of the stuff out of the way in advance of the election so you have some more policies that appeal to them closer to it. Katie, thanks for joining me. Next, following rumours that Joe Biden has recommended the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, to be the next head of NATO, our deputy editor, Freddie Gray, is with me to talk about their relationship and what kind of career she's had. Freddie, thanks for joining Spectator TV. Great pleasure, Kate. So it seems Joe Biden has some strong opinions about who he would like to be the next leader of NATO, and it is none other than Ursula von der Leyen. What do you make of that, Fred? Well, we heard some whispers about this uh, a couple of months ago on Brilliant Steer Bike, picked up on some rumours that Jill Biden has been telling Joe that the next Secretary General of NATO has to be a woman. And of course, this sounded too odd to be true. But often with stories that are too odd to be true, they actually turn out to have a bit of a grain of truth in them. And it seems as though Jill Biden, Joe Biden have definitely got involved in who's going to be the next Secretary General of NATO. Ben Wallace thought he had it. There may be very good reasons for not giving Ben Wallace the job. However, it seems like the reason is Jill and Joe were against. And America, as you know, Kate, as an American, has an enormous amount of power. Yeah. Uh, and they did not like the idea of Ben Wallace. They had other ideas in mind. And it seems now that they like Ursula von der Leyen as their candidate. We'll get into Biden's opinions and America's thoughts on this. But first, let's just look at von der Leyen. Uh, if she were to become the next leader of NATO, what is her track record like? Well, do you know this expression, fail son? No. It means a sort of son that always fails. <laughs> That's actually quite a straightforward expression. I probably should have known it. Okay, great. Leon is a failed daughter. Right. She has endlessly failed in every job she's done, but she has been promoted endlessly because she is the EU equivalent. The phrase I would know is falling upwards. She's falling upwards. There we go. But she always gets promoted because she is one of these sort of EU figures that always gets the right job. And I think Joe Biden's interest in her and Jill Biden's interest in her is connected to the fact that there is a political class who are obsessed with identity. And Ursula von der Leyen cuts this brilliant figure 
in terms of identity. She's a mother of seven. She's a handsome woman who wears sort of power suits and looks the part. But every job she's done, she's done disastrously. That includes President of the European Commission. That includes Minister of Defence for Germany. A spectacular failure she was in that role. Uh, the German troops were running out of ammunition. They were using broomsticks instead of machine guns because they were so badly equipped. You haven't exactly sold her, Fred. Why do you think Joe Biden would want behind the scenes to whisper in ears about von der Leyen? I think they know each other. Uh, I think they've worked together over China issues and so on when she was president of the European Commission. Uh, and I think, I'm afraid, it's as boring an answer as identity politics. Do you not think there's an element of Biden being blatantly anti-British? It wouldn't be the first time that he's tried to snub the UK with pro-European leanings. I think there's a little bit of that. I think we do, as Brits, have to be a little bit careful when we make these accusations because we're very chippy with Brits, <laughs> particularly with Americans. We the relationship was delightful. Is, the, the relationship, <laughs> the relationship is unequal, mm -hmm. right? So we talk about the special relationship, and as Boris Johnson said, when we talk about the special relationship. We sound needy. We sound like we, we need American support. And so I don't necessarily think that Biden is blocking it because he hates Britain, although I do think he has a, a reflexive anti-Britishness. I think what he's probably doing is doing identity politics. And I think he thinks a woman has to fill the role of Secretary General of NATO, and therefore it's got to be a woman. Mm. If Ben Wallace was a woman... He might get the role. Might get the role. Biden is going to be traveling back to the UK shortly. What do you think we can expect from that trip? I think the Sunak administration, number 10, are very keen that this should be a big reset of the special relationship, of the relationship between the US and the UK. Uh, but it's fair to say under Biden, for various reasons, it's not gone well. Right. It's partly that Biden doesn't like Britain. He sees himself as an Irishman who has to hate Britain. It's partly that the Democrats hate Brexit, and so they see themselves as hostile towards a Brexit government. But then set against that, Rishi Sunak is saying, I am the tip of the spear for NATO. I am the person who's going to lead the war effort for you. And so in theory, they have much more in common mm -hmm. in terms of geopolitics than they have separating them. But I don't think he's been very receptive to Britain, and I think that's a problem for, for us, certainly. And possibly for America. Freddie, thanks for joining me. And finally, trigger warnings are supposedly used to make people aware of harmful content, but have they spiraled out of control? Tom Slater has written about the latest decision by publishing houses to put trigger warnings on some of our most cherished literature. He's with me now. Tom, thanks for joining me. You have written for Coffee House about what's happening to Virginia Woolf books in the United States. They're getting some trigger warnings. Yes, this is a very strange one. So vintage... US, the publishing house, um, has issued these new editions of To the Lighthouse, Virginia Woolf's 1927 novel, in which it essentially warns readers that it was written in 1927, and then therefore it might not perfectly reflect all of the attitudes and views that we hold in 2023. It goes as far as to say the reason that we published it unadulterated and unchanged is not to endorse those particular views. Um, it's a curious one, not least because To the Lighthouse is not a particularly outrageous or even particularly political novel you know it's a, it's a quite psychological exploration of a well-to-do family holidaying on the Isle of Skye what vintage US thought was so potentially perilous about it I'm not entirely sure 
but it does seem to be this is something that they're doing to almost any book of a certain age. So concerned are they that the reading public are so much less intelligent than them, I guess. They don't seem to think that they can understand that books exist within a certain historical context and that by publishing them, they're not endorsing them. But unfortunately, that's quite kind of Philistine world that we live in now, it seems like. Well, I'm going to admit to my vested interest here, Mrs. Dalloway is one of my favourite books of all time. Uh, So I'm concerned about what book they may come for next. Uh, But, you know, it's funny how quickly things shift. I mean, perhaps not that quickly. I'm dating myself here. But when I was in university 10 years ago, I was taught Virginia Woolf as this feminist icon, uh, you know, as this rather progressive figure for her time. And then we jump forward 10 years and trigger warnings are being put on her books. Now, as you say, at that time, a lot of people held what we would now consider to be backwards views. But the fact that that is front and center of her work, rather than the more progressive things she was saying at the time in certain areas like feminism, is what's being upheld. No, I think that is really interesting how quickly people can be kind of dispensed with. I mean, if vintage US or anyone else is worried about the views of certain modernist authors, you know, heaven forbid they find out who Ezra Pound is. There's all kinds of people with all kinds of very curious and unpleasant views from that particular period in time. It's odd, as you say, because someone like Wolf went from being almost a kind of feminist heroine in the eyes of many people in the literary establishment. I mean, I think it's worth saying that this particular warning and the kind of warnings that we're seeing proliferate now is not just at vintage US. Nancy Mitford's novels have been slapped with trigger warnings in the UK recently. Um, is effectively about submitting almost any text or any author to the crudest of political purity tests. You know, even if there's just a character in a particular novel that might be seen as a little bit nasty, rather than trusting a reader to understand that that's fictional, for one thing, but also that might not that one doesn't go to a novel just to see a perfect reflection of their own view of the world. That seems to have gone out of the window. So I think what we're looking at here is something that's even beyond just the standing of particular authors. It's just a much broader patronizing culture, which assumes that we need this kind of like therapeutic scaffolding just to read books. And that's a really depressing thing as much as anything else. That's an interesting point about trust. I've been reflecting on that point as well. It It doesn't always seem like it's so much about the content of the book, but rather how the reader will interpret that content. And very often it seems like the assumption is that there is no way that they could critically assess what they're taking in. Um, And so if a character is perhaps supposed to be good and has backward views or is supposed to be bad, and that is indicated by having backward views, it's almost as if the, the context doesn't matter or the individual can't work this out for themselves. It has to be made very, very clear to them from the outset what they're about to consume. No, I think that's exactly right. And it's so deeply, genuinely offensive, I think, to the intelligence of the reading public. I think going back to that Nancy Mitford example, so her book, The Pursuits of Love, was published in 1945. Penguin bring out this new edition and they say that it contains prejudices that were commonplace in British society at the time. They even went the extra step to say that those prejudices were wrong then and wrong now. Um, I haven't read the book myself, but I'm very reliably informed that that seems to reference one particular character who's almost like a comical xenophobe. He's not someone you're expected to root for in this particular novel. Yet even so, there's this terror that someone somewhere might pick it up and think that they should just unthinkingly imbibe these particular views, even when they're expressed by someone cartoonishly unpleasant. So I think that lack of trust in the audience is definitely there. I think the other thing that we need to be very cognizant of is the fact that this culture of kind of almost comical offence taking that we're seeing, this desire to preempt what are seen as the thin-skinned concerns of some imaginary reader. You know, we used to see this a lot on university campuses. We still do 
to a large extent. There was often, I think, a complacency that that kind of culture of trigger warnings, which is where um, on university campuses was certainly where they first took root, that all of that was basically just student tripperies and that it wasn't going to escape into the outside world. I think it's very clear now that we all kind of live on a university campus now that those students who 10 years ago were making headlines by calling for trigger warnings and all kinds of books, they've gone out into the world of work, out into our institutions, out into our publishing houses, and they haven't left those prejudices of their own behind. They want those places to be a safe space as well. They brought all the bubble wrap and the cotton wool with them. So I think what we need to recognize is if, you know, while we're often invited to kind of laugh at some of the woke excesses of university campuses, if we don't want that to spill out into general society, we really need to start taking these arguments on because they're just going to fester and permeate more of our institutions. Well, let's have some of those arguments. I'll play devil's advocate here. Uh, you note that these trigger warnings have not yet spread to the UK edition. Uh, when we get deeply upset and flustered about what's happening in the US, if it's not happening in the UK, or certainly not to the same extent, do we risk importing that kind of American culture war that actually we would just like to avoid altogether and don't particularly want to have that debate in the UK? Well, I think we're importing it already is the point. So when this first kind of kicked off about 10 years ago in the US, you saw loads of demands for trigger warnings. Again, it was seen as a very American thing. Now that is everywhere in British university campuses. There was a story earlier this year, which is about Peter Pan being given a trigger warning at Aberdeen University. So, you know, if we're worried about importing it, that ship has already sailed. And I also think even in terms of the publishing world, that whilst these, this particular example is referring to vintage US, uh, there are various examples which have already taken place of publishing houses taking it upon themselves to kind of stand in judgment of previous authors. In some respects, it's gone even to a greater extent here, if you think about what happened with Roald Dahl and the attempt to rewrite his books because they were deemed too unpleasant and too spiky for children to read. If anything, that's far worse than slapping a trigger warning on it. And that's something that we've been seeing within our own kind of domestic publishing market. It is regrettable that we are sort of downstream from America, no offence, Kate, on many of these particular questions. But at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that that is what's taking place. Would you agree that trigger warnings are appropriate on certain kinds of content? Wolf and her books are a fantastic example of how sensitive some people are being. But what about on social media? You get some explicitly violent content going around. And indeed, sometimes that's the point. I'm thinking of something like police violence or brutality against civilians that is deliberately designed to be spread and, and shared with the masses uh, so that people can react to it. Do you think there should be a warning if you're about to see a real person get stabbed or get shot before you press play? Well, I think when we're talking about things like social media, that becomes a slightly different example because it's something that could quite easily be thrust upon you by the, the feed, you know. And I, I, I think there's kind of questions that social media companies could look into around making sure that people aren't bombarded or exposed to things that they might not otherwise want to see. I think a lot of that can come down to filters and so on. I think the thing about trigger warnings themselves in terms of usually sat on books and films and so on, is that they were often, there was a kind of acceptable case for it at one point, which is this idea that some people have PTSD, some people have very traumatic experiences, and therefore reading a book that might have a scene in it which might remind them of the worst thing that ever happened to them could be terrible for them, and therefore you want to preempt that. The thing is, there's been a lot of research on this ever since they first kind of came into public consciousness, and it's pretty clear now that even if your concern is making sure that people who have suffered sort of genuine traumas aren't triggered in the literal sense, 
then trigger warning is actually a terrible idea. This is not how you treat people who have traumas and PTSD. The, the whole point of therapy is to make them comfortable in the world again. So I think when it comes to that question of trigger warnings in particular, there's never really been a good case for it. And I think the problem with them is that it's also not just about people who are genuinely suffering. It's about treating us all as effectively as kind of mentally unwell in need of that kind of support. And it's that culture that it feeds of thinking everyone's vulnerable, of thinking everyone's a victim that I find so objectionable and I think can't help but breed calls for censorship at much else. Is there not simply a case for more choice? For example, Vintage US can put this trigger warning on a book and if I'm opposed to trigger warnings, I can jump on Amazon and buy an old version of the book. Uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be so black and white, does it? Perhaps some people want that kind of warning, other people don't. And um, surely that's all right. I think choice is an important point. I mean, when we're talking about this particular trigger warning, I mean, it's not the as outrageous as something like we've seen recently with the attempts to actually rewrite authors. And I think what was quite outrageous about some of those is where choice was actually removed. It wasn't immediately obvious when they were rewriting Roald Dahl for it, so you were going to be able to buy those original versions. That's now um, the case, but it wasn't clear from the outset. So I'm all for choice. I think my issue with trigger warnings in particular, I'm not trying to suggest that this is like the Stasi or something. It's purely because of the fact that it reflects a philistinism, paternalism, culture of victimhood, which I think is is unpleasant. And even though this might not be the most excessive example of kind of meddling with past authors and so on that we've seen recently, it's another reminder that that culture is very firmly held amongst our elite literary institutions. Mm. Tom, you've written quite a bit about how trigger warnings are affecting literature. Dare I ask, who are you worried could be the next victim? What's funny about trigger warnings is that they seem to attach themselves to almost anything. I mean, we've already mentioned Peter Pan. I mean, what possibly at a university you could be upset by Peter Pan? Why is not entirely obvious? There was another one, I think it was in Scotland as well, where Beowulf got slapped with a trigger warning because it contained monsters. And if you wanted another example of how infantilizing this is, surely that is a, is a perfect example. But there's no rival reason to it. I think what we've got is a kind of free-floating culture of offence um, and surely a much better way out of this is just to treat university students, members of the public, people who read books as adults and trust them to get on with it. But that seems to be a pretty heretical idea in a lot of literary circles these days. Tom, thanks for joining Spectator TV. That's it for this week. Once again, thanks to Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management for sponsoring the week in 60 Minutes. Canaccord will provide you with the expertise you need to help build your wealth with confidence. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Thanks again for watching and do join us again next week. Hello and welcome to The Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on Thursday the 6th of July. I'm Kate Andrews, The Spectator's Economics Editor and your host this week. Coming up on the show... Riots in France, with hundreds of people arrested and cities on fire. Are other European leaders asking, could this happen here? I'll speak to The Spectator's chairman, Andrew Neal, and Jonathan Miller, who wrote our cover piece this week. This week marks 75 years of the NHS. Is there much to celebrate? I'll be speaking to former Health Secretary Sajid Javid about the state of the health service and what its future might look like. Rishi Sunak's ratings have fallen into the negative for the first time since he entered number 10. As the fifth by-election looms following Chris Pincher's suspension, how are things faring for the Tories? I'll speak to our political editor, Katie Balls. 
Over in America, there are rumors circulating that the Bidens are backing Ursula von der Leyen to be the next NATO leader. Freddie Gray joins me on the show to discuss corruption and friends in politics. And finally, this comes with a trigger warning. Following the decision made by a publishing house in the United States to put a trigger warning on Virginia Woolf's work, who might be flagged next? I'll be speaking to Tom Slater from Spiked. And if you enjoy Spectator TV, then do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click the subscribe button at the bottom of this video and tap the bell icon to make sure you never miss an episode. First up, for our cover piece this week, Jonathan Miller has written about the riots taking place across cities in France, a problem that has intensified across Europe recently. He joins me now alongside our chairman, Andrew Neal. Jonathan, you write in this week's cover piece for the magazine that Europe is approaching a boiling point as gang violence is rising up across several countries. I want to start by asking you about the recent riots in France. What's it been like living there? Well, in our village, it's been utterly unremarkable, except that the conversation in the cafe is one of enormous uh, annoyance that this should be happening yet again. France is in a almost perpetual state of rioting and attacks, but this was unusually severe. And it was provoked by the death of a 17-year-old boy in the suburb of Paris who was shot by the police refusing to stop for a control. And a bit like George Floyd in America, a person who did not have an unimpeachable character. Nahel uh, also was involved with gangs. He had 14 previous encounters with the police. But his killing was enough to provoke an insurgence, really, across France in these beaulieu, terrible suburbs that surround every French city. And it went on for several days. Hundreds of police have been injured. A number of people have been killed. The government initially appeared paralyzed, but with the, uh, the, the police action, um, it has, seems for the moment to have subsided. But although it's subsided, the low-level intensity of, uh, of gang violence in France continues and the fundamental problems are not solved. No politician seems to have a clue what to do about it. And sadly, the prospect is that it could become worse. Jonathan, you write in your piece that, like many riots across many countries, there will be some people who are actively pursuing a sense of social justice, but there will be other groups who are trying to capitalize on the moment and cause chaos. What's the balance like at the moment in France? I would say that most of the really violent action was committed by opportunists and gangs, uh, you know, because looting a shop or burning down a supermarket or a Renault dealer is not really a form of protest. That sort of violent behavior uh, is more classified as a sort of insurrection uh, or a criminal opportunism. There are those who've protested the situation but even there, there's some uh, some questions, uh, just exactly what the circumstances were. And it will remain for the criminal justice system to determine exactly what happened. Andrew, what do you make of Macron's response to these riots? Well, he survived them. He survived the Gilets jaunes, uh, which were much more extensive demonstrations and pretty violent in Paris and other big cities for a while. He survived the anti-pension reform uh, demonstrations as well. He saw that, them off and he's seen this off. It's all beginning to peter out. There was a lot of um, sort of excited coverage, particularly in the Anglo-Saxon media, including, may I say, the Spectator Online, that France was on the brink of civil war 
and uh, riots that would bring down the government and the army would have to be deployed. It was all stuff and nonsense. And these things happen. There isn't a country in Europe that isn't uh, one police shooting away from serious riots. I mean, this could happen in every major city in Europe, even this country, where our race relations are pretty much better than anywhere else. It could even happen in a place like Malmo in Sweden. It could happen in Germany. It happened in Belgium. It's spilled over. It could certainly happen in Italy. It was never going to be a threat to the government itself. It was a, the riots were serious. There were a lot of violence. There's a, an underclass has been created. Many of us saw it coming years and years ago, but nothing was done about it. And this underclass in the banlieue, in the ghettos, in the poorest suburb exists in a mixture of welfare dependency and uh, quite violent criminality. And how you deal with that, because we've dealt with it basically by just shutting it off uh, the, the, there. But although it's a serious social problem, it is not a threat to the state. It's an embarrassment to the state. It's an expensive danger to the state because all these businesses have to be rebuilt. But when revolutions are not built on riots in which the average age of the people arrested is 17. The reason why Les Avenimaux in 1968 were far more significant was it wasn't just the students who were rioting in major cities and, and going for a revolution. The unions joined in. The, the working class joined in as well. That was a threat to the state. Now de Gaulle saw it off in the end. This was not a threat to the state. It was a symptom uh, uh, an insurgency of a deep-rooted social problem that has taken place, that has allowed an underclass to take roots of a particular ethnic and migrant background in the most generous welfare state in the world. Mm -hmm. So if it can happen in France, it can happen anywhere. But I add, and I agree with you, that it's not a threat to the state itself, but it has left... Emmanuel Macron seriously diminished. Uh, we recall that when Macron was first elected, he was on the cover of the Economist magazine, Walking on Water. And after the passage of Merkel, uh, uh, he, his ambition was to become the leader of Europe. That, can I just remind you, that's also the magazine that had Angela Merkel as the leader of the world. Perhaps not a magazine we should take too much notice of. Uh, perhaps, perhaps it's... What's it called again? It, 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 I, I, I forget, but I, I, I think we both used to work there, actually. We did. That was in <laughs> when dinosaurs walked the earth. I mean, France, obviously, since 1789, has had this revolutionary tradition, and this, these latest events were not the most violent. There is an interesting parallel that apparently during these recent riots, animals were freed from the zoo, mm. which also happened in 1789. The difference was that in 1789, they ate the animals. Mm. So, but nevertheless, Macron couldn't go to the European summit on migration. And now the political center in France is menaced by the rise of Marine Le Pen, who is, looks like the favorite to win the next election. But I have to fear that she will only make matters worse because she has no real ideas for how to deal with this. And in fact, across Europe, nobody seems to have a particularly good idea of how to definitively resolve this problem of these uh, areas infested with gangs, infested with crime, with young people completely disconnected from education and opportunity, unemployable, except perhaps in criminality. 
Well, let's branch out from France, Jonathan, because in your cover piece, you look at disruptions happening in other countries like Germany and Sweden. Well, particularly Sweden, which is you know now the country in Europe uh, with the highest proportion of migrants. In Europe, 25%, a quintessential example of a liberally minded social democracy mm. um, and which opened its arms to receive these people and is now uh, the, the police in Sweden, I think, believe there are was it 38,000 uh, gangsters. They're mostly young. They're incredibly violent. Uh, the current Swedish criminal justice system is really quite incapable of dealing with them. I talk in my piece about a hitman who killed the wrong person, was sentenced to four years in prison, uh, promptly escaped, uh, but was granted Swedish citizenship simultaneously. And now, and teachers, uh, teachers in Sweden are being told by their students, it's, uh, you're worth four years, I can, do, I can kill you and I'll only get four years for it. So that shows the, the degeneration of Swedish society into something that is really th threatening to his reputation. Andrew, in Jonathan's piece, he also talks about migration and the potential connection between what's been happening there and the riots. I wonder sometimes, especially when we're looking at asylum seekers and how they're coming into the country, is the issue the systems themselves or a lack of a system? In the UK, for example, there basically is no functioning asylum system. There are very few legal pathways for asylum seekers to come here only from a few select countries, and you end up in a position where you don't know who a lot of the people coming into the country are. Is the issue a failure of a system or just a complete lack of a system in place? Well, I don't think it's asylum seekers that are rioting. It's uh, economic, it's migrants, or actually, in the case of France, it's people who are kids who were born in France. Mm -hmm. You know, they're French, um, but they don't feel part of French society. And it's quite hard to know exactly what could be done about this. After all, one of the features, I mean, the ghetto is an American expression. And one of the features of the ghetto historically, say in the 60s or 70s, was mass unemployment. Well, actually, there's a huge labor shortage in, in France at the moment. People are crying out for labor. That's true in Britain. It's true in Germany as well. It's even becoming true in, uh, in Italy. It's certainly true in Sweden, we've been talking about. So it can't be that you have a, a kind of unemployed, youth there. I think a lot of these youngsters have found it culturally more attractive to be involved in low-level crime uh, than to have a proper job, much to the despair of their parents, who are first-generation migrants and wanted to make it in France or in the countries that, that they've gone to. So I don't think it's the asylum system. I think it, it is a problem of assimilating migrants. It's turned out now the Europeans were always terribly superior when they looked at the United States and America's race problems and all the discrimination and the difficulties and, and so on, and the riots that they had in the 60s in Watts and Harlem and so on. Well, they don't look so superior now because actually Europe, excluding Britain, Europe has proved to be much less capable of assimilating and absorbing large numbers of migrants than America, which is built on migration, or even Britain. And one of the problems that France faces, Germany has it to some extent too, is that the migrant population there, first, second, third generation, particularly in France, are all almost one of a kind. They are nearly all of North African extraction or origin or culture, and they're nearly all Muslim. 
Whereas if you look at the British migration picture, it's incredibly varied. You know, Christians from uh, Africa, Hindus from India, including our own dear Prime Minister, mm -hmm. uh, is is from from there. Muslims, yes, uh, as as well. Uh, West Indians, uh, Africans, Sub-Saharan, North African, uh, Subcontinent, Middle East, Afghanistan, now Ukraine, much more varied, which therefore means within Britain, you get differential performance among migrant groups. So Chinese migrants perform better than anybody, way better than the indigenous white population. Those of Indian extraction perform really well too. Those of Pakistani extraction, less well. But you don't get a kind of uniform picture. Whereas in France, and to some extent in Germany too, because all the migrants have roughly the same background, not all of them, but a lot of them, you get the same problem repeated again and again. Whereas you go to Leicester in Britain, you will see a thriving migrant city. Go to Rochdale, you see a not-so-thriving migrant city. I'd have to say, coming back to England for one of my brief visits, uh, one is slightly encouraged by the different uh, situation in Britain compared to France. I think in France, there is really a, an almost institutional racism. These kids have very little access to higher education. The women are invisible. Whereas I come to London and I see the splendid example of how people can rub against each other and live Happily, which is not to say that Britain is necessarily immune. It may just take one police. We had, you know, the riots in 2011. We've had, you know, there are local difficulties. Um, the idea of a, of a national eruption is somewhat improbable yes. in, in Britain compared to France. Well, that's the last question I want to put to you. Uh, Andrew, you mentioned this at the start of our conversation, uh, that you think that this, these kinds of disruptions, these kinds of riots could be set off in other countries. Do you think other European leaders are looking at the situation in France and to some extent Sweden and Germany and thinking we could be next? Oh, I think there's no question about that. I think every leader in Europe, including I, th I, I would suggest our own dear prime minister should be thinking this too, that we're all only one police bullet away from a riot, mm. uh, particularly if that police bullet is fired in uh, suspicious circumstances. So circumstances that become hard to defend, whatever we'll find out in the end. More visible on social media. Yes. And, so, trans social, and social media has made it much worse. Social media has made it much worse. And this was demonstrated with George Floyd in America with DC. We're propagated. And of course, one of the things that Macron has done is imposed really quite, quite tough censorship on social media for the diffusion of these videos. Uh, which, which can certainly backfire if people think they well, can come Well, I think this was the action of a totalitarian state, and I'm no fan of Macron, but he has a point that, that Twitter and Instagram yes. create a kind of mass, a mass sort of psychosis in which people see uh, people doing terrible things and imitate it. Um, the final point, though, that I'd like to throw into this is just as in France, uh, we're seeing the rise and rise of Marine Le Pen, and her, her renamed National Front, the Rassemblement National. There is, I think this is going to track Europe more broadly to the right. And we're seeing in Spain, there's a general election coming, coming up in which the traditional socialists are being outpaced by a right-wing party. We see, this, uh, we see this in Italy where Maloney is prime minister. 
she's often described as extreme right. She's not extreme right, but they are right. The problem is that in common with all these right-wing politicians is none of them really have a clue what to do. And they, like all politicians, they think that saying something is the equivalent of doing something. So you're hearing a lot of words. We have to cure this problem. We have to address the issues. What exactly are the policies? I mean, the, Europe has had a lost decade. You know, after the euro crisis, unemployment rates were you know, scary. Among youngsters, I mean, the unemployment rate in Italy among young teenagers reached 40% at one stage. It was a disaster. And I think there's a danger is that Europe now faces a second lost decade too, particularly if the ECB keeps on raising interest rates and tightening money. There'll be another decade of no growth. That makes it very hard to solve problems. I don't say growth, growth on its own solves the problems, but it does make it easier to deal with the problems. There's more money in the Treasury to deal with them. It does help. I think the other thing related to France that I find most scary is that these, these riots, as they have in America, and the, the cultural significance of America is unbelievable. I don't believe this would be happening in France over the past weekend if it hadn't been for George Floyd in the first place. That set the example of what you do when, when the people in the poorest parts see what they think a racial injustice on the part of the police. You riot, you set fire. And indeed, this time, unlike 2005 in France, they went into the city centers. In 2005, they largely stayed rather stupidly burning their own regions, their own areas. This time, they were at the expense of ones. And I think the danger, as this encourages extremes, so Mélenchon on the left has been in there stirring things up. He's a kind of Pujadis populist of the left. And of course, as Jonathan says, Madame Le Pen has had a new lease of life. The real danger in France is that the mainstream right and the mainstream left are dead in the water. Macron killed them. They barely exist. But Macron can't run again as president. And I suspect his party falls apart uh, when he goes, that it has no future beyond Macron. So what's the political response? The centre cannot hold, to quote an Irish poet, and the extremes are rampant, and the riots make that worse. I think that's the political danger of what happened in France over the past week. Andrew and Jonathan, thanks for joining me.